So our final panel on theoretical museology and the functions of museums in the community will be moderated by Luciana Menezi de Calvalu, who is a board member of both ICAFOM and ICAFOM LAM. She has a university degree in museology and a master's and PhD degrees in museology and heritage. Luciana is the director of the Museum of Memory and Heritage at the Federal University of Alfenas in Brazil. I'm going to take a screenshot of all of us right now. And then I'll let Luciana take over. OK. Everyone is hear me? Okay. Yes. OK. So good afternoon. Bonjour à tous les personnes qui parlent français ici ici. Buenas tardes a todos mis colegas que hablan español de habla hispánica. Y boa tarde aos brasileiros que estão aqui. First of all, I would like to thank you, Robert and Susie, especially especially you, Susie, for the invitation. Susie is my colleague from Microphone. Thank you. It's a pleasure to, to me to be the moderator of the panel presented by Susie. Unfortunately, Martin was not able to, to come and to be with us to this panel, in this panel. So, we have two very interesting papers to be presented in this panel, and these researches are connected by the importance of community experience in changing and decolonizing museum practice, and therefore they have contributed to the theoretical museology interface. So, without further ado, I will introduce to you all the two presentations that you are going to have for the next hour. The first one will be Deborah Ziska with the paper Museum of the Americas Facing Crisis in the 21st Century, the Rise of Relevance and Community Empowerment. And she is an ICOM US and ICOM MDR board member, board member of the Friends of the Art Museums of the Americas, OAS, OAS Lecture for the Museum Studies Graduate Program at John Hopkins University. And the second one, Mini Konish with Alnash Kawak, Creek Culture Institute Agents and Actions in a Regional Cultural Institute. She is Interim Executive Director of this Museum of this Cultural Institute. So, we both have 30 minutes to present your research, okay? And I will show my hands when five minutes remain, okay? This way. So, Deborah, the floor is yours. Deborah, when I listen, can I hear you?
thing. Now can you hear me? Is that okay? Good. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. Good afternoon from Washington, D.C. Um, I'm very happy to be here. Um, as you heard, I don't know if you heard the title of my course that I teach at Johns Hopkins is called Museums of the Americas Facing Challenges of the 21st Century. However, I changed that for this presentation to crises because we're really, we're facing crises right now. It was challenges a few years ago, I thought, but now we're really in, we're facing um, the challenge of crises right in front of us. And I'm going to focus on the rise of relevance and community empowerment. This is a um, street mural that I took a photograph of in 2017 when I was visiting a very special neighborhood in, uh, during the El Museo Reimaginado Conference or the Reimagining Museums Conference in Medellin, Colombia. It was organized by Fundacion Dipa of Argentina, the American Alliance of Museums of the United States, and was hosted by Parque Explora Science Center, which you'll hear more about later on. For me, this mural represents so many things, um, but primarily how marginalized peoples and reimagined museums are empowering people and their communities. And I hope they'll even empower traditional museums around the world, um, museums that are still resisting change, to be relevant in the 21st century. Uh, we'll talk about some macro crises like climate change and socioeconomic disparity and the COVID-19 pandemic and the disproportionate impact that they're having on marginalized communities um, that we've segregated for most of our history, indigenous peoples, Afro-descendants, and displaced people or migrants from rural areas. And we'll talk about some of the, um, we'll consider some of the deep and broad visions for the 21st century, such as social museology, um, which is connected to sustainable development of communities, cultural landscapes, and territorial museums and uh, also what they're doing. They're doing radical reimagining from the beginning. They originate with radical reimagining. That's how they started. And we'll talk about collective memory, curiosity and creativity, horizontal dialogue, and the social appropriation of knowledge. Here we go. I'd like to start with a quote from Peter Wynn, author of a book that I use in my course called America's The Changing Face of Latin America and the Caribbean. In the shrinking world, in the shrinking world of the 20th of the 21st century, national boundaries and sovereignty are likely to mean less than in the past, while the economic, social, and cultural links among the peoples of this hemisphere are likely to mean more. In the new century, citizens of the United States and allied Canada, as well as the peoples of Latin America and the Caribbean may well discover that what is most important is that we are all Americans and share a hemisphere that we call the Americas. And I'd like to add that we also share a history of indigenous and colonialist history, of which we're still feeling the impacts today. Perhaps our biggest challenge or crisis is, not, not perhaps, our biggest crisis right now is climate change. And as you probably heard, we are living in the era of the Anthropocene. Um, Emlyn Costu, who is an eminent geologist, museologist, and humanist, many of you might know him or have heard him at some of the conferences for ICOM, he recognizes humanity as a dominant species, which in a geological nanosecond has extensively detached itself from the Earth system, endangering the future of both. We're living in the Anthropocene. 
You're all aware of the impact that our daily activities across the Americas are having on the Americas as global temperatures reach new highs, melting polar caps, rising waters along our coastlines, out of control wildfires, even in the tropical Amazon, which is so hard to imagine, but there it is, and other critical, uh, criti critical climate, uh, climate forests. Um, extreme weather conditions like the hurricane season in the Atlantic and now in the Gulf of Mexico as we speak. Um, it's predicted to be the worst hurricane season on record in the Atlantic and Gulf, by the way. And we're seeing uh, extinction of animals everywhere, leading to an accelerating decrease in biodiversity that is so necessary for our life on this planet. These developments exacerbate many of our other serious problems in the world today, from economic inequality to racial injustice and the spread of zoonotic diseases such as COVID-19. Among the people who are disproportionately impacted by the climate change are indigenous peoples who constitute only 5% of the world's population. This is very well known to a lot of people. Yet they are the vital stewards. We all should be vital stewards, but they really live this. They are the vital stewards of the environment because their traditional territories make up 22% of the world's land surface and 80% of the planet's biodiversity. This is according to the FAO. Um, this report just came out in July. It's called Defending Tomorrow. It's published by Global Witness. It's about, about the climate crisis and threats against land and environmental defenders. Over 212 land and environmental defenders were killed worldwide in 2019. Two-thirds of those killings took place in Latin America, 33 of them in the Amazon region, and, most of them, and a lot of them are indigenous people. Wayarani tribes in the Ecuadorian Amazon won a huge victory against oil interests and the Ecuadorian government. And they are in order to protect half a million acres and potentially seven million more in order to preserve their natural and their cultural heritage, their homes and their way of life that helps the planet. But their fight goes on. It's continual. Um, I, if you want to follow the Wayarani, I would uh, go to Amazon Frontline. They are doing they're amazingly savvy. They go into Quito and they just take over. Um, and on social media, they're amazing. They do great press conferences and demonstrations. Um, and they've been very successful thus far, but the fight continues. Uh, here in the United States, the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe and other Native American and environmental groups who fought the Dakota Access Pipeline for years arguing that a spill under the nearby Missouri River, which you can see in the lower left, <clears throat> could pollute the water that they rely on for fishing, drinking, and religious ceremonies, cultural heritage again. They won a victory in July, this past July, when, a, when the court ruled that the pipeline had to be shut down and emptied of oil. But guess what? The oil is still flowing, and the legal battle continues. So the, the, the common theme in all of this is that living culture and natural heritage go hand in hand. And this is something indigenous people have lived for centuries. The Air's Ears National Monument, which encompassed 1.35 million acres, was designated a national monument in 2016 by President Obama with input from a very historic coalition of tribes, including the Navajo, the Hopi, the Zuni, and the Ute, 
and the Ute Mountain tribes. They formed this historic coalition to serve, to save, protect, and promote sacred, spiritual, historical, natural, scientific, and cultural resources. They described Bears Ears as a cultural landscape, very important designation. And their mission is to, quote, to assure that the Bears Ears area will be managed forever with the greatest environmental sensitivity where we can be among our ancestors, where we can connect with the land and be healed. And I think that could be easily become a universal mission of all mankind, quite frankly. In 2018, the Trump administration shrank the land by 85%, which the tribes and conservation groups argue would leave the area's very sensitive archeological sites and sacred burial grounds, vulnerable to destruction by agriculture, visitation, and natural resource exploitation, including mining. So the legal battle there also continues. Um, but Bears Ears National Monument was named to the 2020 World Monuments Watch, which is a biennial list of cultural heritage sites around the world that are in urgent need of conservation. <clears throat> so despite continued economic growth and a decrease in the number of people living in extreme poverty around the world, and particularly in the Americas, I mean, that's the good news. Our most vulnerable populations are being left behind. The poverty threshold in the United States is roughly $25,700 for a family of four or for two people of $16,000. In the United States, that's about 17.3 million people. According to census data, the highest poverty rate by race, you can see there, is Native Americans, followed by Blacks, Hispanics, whites and Asians at 10%. Uh, you'll find similar um, statistics, not so much so, but not so much in Canada, but in, um, in Latin America and the Caribbean and nine countries where they are collecting such information, the poverty rate of indigenous and Afro-descendant people is double that of all other ethnicities. And in the 2016 Census of Canada, there's a 33% average income gap between indigenous and non-indigenous peoples. And I didn't add this there, but I was just looking it up. Um, you might not know it, but of all the G7 nations, we were talking about the United Kingdom, Italy, Japan, Canada, Germany, US, and France, guess which country has the highest income inequality? The United States. So drivers of migration um, are well, people who lack income or more vulnerable, obviously, to crime, drugs, violence, persecution, often of, uh, often of um, indigenous populations, political dysfunction, economic collapse, and environmental degradation all across the Western Hemisphere. And we have to add elitism and impunity to that. And think about how much museums, some museums, contribute to the elitist, that last part, elitism and impunity. You have to think about that. As a consequence, marginalized populations are far less likely to take part in upward mobility because they don't have the same access to lifelong education, security, economic opportunity, a clean environment, housing, and basic utilities and healthcare. 
To achieve inclusive growth and upward mobility across classes and ethnicities, we need to invest more in human capital across all of these areas. And we need, and museums need to play a more central role. My first uh, in-person introduction to community museums was in 2013 during the triennial of ICOM in Rio de Janeiro when I joined the International Committee for Museums and Collections of Ethnography on tours of three favelas, um, generally known as squatter communities, but I hate to define them like that, um, that climb up the hills, you're pretty aware of that, overlooking Rio. By the way, they have the, they have the rich man's view of the city and the ocean, by the way. Um, these favelas have been formed mostly by a complex mix of migrants, um, descendants of former soldiers and African slaves, but also indigenous cultures from the interior of the country, and even migrants from countries such as Haiti, um, all looking for work and income and a better quality of life. Um, you'll see um, the location of some of the favelas we're going to talk about right now, where that red dot is on the right, um, sits on the hills between Ipanema and Copacabana. So meet favela resident, artist, and guide Carlos Esquivel, who's, um, who greeted us at the colorful arched entrance to Cantagalo Favela. He's known as Muestre Acme, and he's um, one of the founders of the Musée de Favela. I'm standing at the entrance to the Musée's base. It's a pioneering and now world-famous territorial museum. Based, it's based on the principles of community museums that he and other founders had studied when they were organizing their community. Today, his art can be seen all over the world, and he's come a long way from the time when he was shining shoes on the beaches of Rio, and so has his favela. So we hiked up the steep and narrow pathways past doors of homes and shops whose walls served as canvases, as painting canvases for street murals painted by local artists like Acme that tell the history of the residents who lived there, that tell the history of where they came from, their cultural heritage, their diversity, um, past and present. Um, there's a wonderful publication called Rio on Watch um, that describes this as a, uh, the Musée de Favela as a community-based initiative that aims to value the favela's memory, make its history public, and support local cultural life. It's not a physical site that you can pick out in the landscape, rather the concept is that of a territorial museum. The space of the favela becomes the museum's focus, and everything contained within the community's limits becomes part of the archive. This totally upends traditional elitist notions of what constitutes a museum and who museums serve, making a statement that favelas, and this favela in particular, contain troves of culture and history that must be valued and preserved. Uh, the Musée has a, is a nonprofit organization. It has a board of directors, a fiscal council, many, many institutional partnerships, um, memberships. You can become a member if you'd like. It has, you, can, you can give it donations. Um, craft shop, they make local crafts, and only and tours. Um, only residents of the favela can give tours, by the way. Eventually, we reached the Musée's headquarters, which was also a Catholic church. It's a community center. It's a computer lab. It's classrooms where they teach English and Spanish. There's a play area for children. There's a gallery, an exhibition gallery, a craft shop. Um, you'll, the Musée, which is very active on social media, and there are some of their sites 
the accounts that they have. Um, it's very, it, it also sponsors community film screenings, a traveling library. Um, they have an annual celebration called Women Warriors. That includes an exhibition, awards and posters, and a parade to honor exceptional women in the neighborhood. Imuchomas, this is just the tip of the iceberg. So the Musée de Favela is a territorial museum. It's a living territorial museum, and I need to add the word living to that. It emerged from the residents' desire to improve their community and claim, and, more, and, and just as important, to claim their rightful position in the life of Rio de Janeiro, to be integrated, not separated, but at the same time to maintain their cultural heritage and their identity. They talk a lot about awakening souls and dreams. At its heart, the museum researches, collects, and preserves the social and collective memory for its multiplier effect, partly through educational activities that impact the quality of life for all ages, um, to improve environmental conditions, and to promote history and culture, but also through a very broad range of cultural diversity programming to recognize their ethnic identities, the diversity of that, to seek out new talent, especially in the samba music world. Um, and this results in understanding and empowerment leading to transformation. So what we are talking about is social museology that is part of the community's sustainable development. Today, Rio has over a dozen community museums. Another you probably know about is the Marais Museum that was founded in 2008 in the favelas of Marais, which is in the north. Um, of Rio. Uh, and today, the Marais Center for Memory, and you see pictures here, memory and identity, and some uh, nonprofits are planning an outdoor gallery or a territorial museum just like that of the one we just saw in Cantagalo, the Musee de Favela. Um, and this is for an area, this will serve an area of 140,000 people spread across 17 communities. One of the coordinators of this effort, who's pictured here, said, I think memory and ethic play an important role in sustainable development. I truly believe this project, that this project as a means of boosting self-worth and dialogue with the city of Rio de Janeiro and with the world. Being able to take part in the creation of a social museum that combines art, culture, memory, and identity together with the residents of Marais offers us a glimpse of transformation. So favelas are not hubs of poverty. The people who live inside these communities are not ignorant or complacent. Quite the contrary, they possess the do-it-yourself spirit and a build-your-own mentality that Brazilian mainstream society and all of us mainstream society, in mainstream society can learn from, including the museums. So grab your passports because we are heading for Colombia. Um, if you've been to Colombia, you know that it's a um, country of stunning and diverse geography that allows for robust crops. A lot of us get coffee from Colombia, and even a lot of our roses come from Colombia. They're exported worldwide. But it's also known for cocaine production and camouflage for guerrillas and right-wing militias. It is well known that Colombians have endured decades, I would say centuries, <clears throat> and repeated cycles of violence and fear. The city of Medellin was renowned as a murder capital of the world, rife with corruption and drug cartels, in bed with guerrilla forces and militias. In the early 2000s, however, prominent thinkers and leaders across all sectors were meeting to discuss how they could change 
the trajectory of their city, much like the residents of the favela in Rio. Um, while I was in Medellin in 2017 for the El Museo Reimaginado Conference that I mentioned earlier, I spent time with the staff of Parque Explora uh, to develop more content for my class. And during my interview with the director, Andres Roldan, who has been the director of Parque since 2014, he arrived there when the museum opened in 2007. And he was part of these groups that were talking about how to change, how they could change the city and the people in it. Um, so he was among those who reimagined Medellin. And during our interview, he said that the question we need to ask ourselves is, what are we doing wrong? as a society in terms of what kinds of conversations we have, the values we hold, and the situations that we live in. Imagine if we, as museum leaders, ask the question, what are we doing wrong as museum people, professionals, in terms of what kinds of conversations we have, the values we hold, and the situations we work in? So this is a parquet, it has a, these are iconic pavilions, uh, they're well known, they, sometimes they're used as a symbol of Medellin and Medellin's re, uh, Renaissance. So Parque Explora, as you see here on the left and in a map in the lower right, um, opened with a, a mission to inspire, communicate, and transform by means of interactive scenarios that contribute to the public appropriation of the scientific, technological, and social knowledge necessary to build a better society. It was purposely built in a once forgotten marginalized and next to what was one, one of the most marginalized parts of the city. It sits, you can't see it on this map too well, but it sits right next to the University Metrista, um, the university campus. To the right of it is a huge botanical garden. To the left, a huge recreation park. And in the upper V-shaped area is the um, the neighborhood of, of Moravia, which we're about to talk about now, or shortly. So first of all, let's just talk a little bit more about Parque Explorer, the, the place. It's, it's many, many things. It's, um, it's constantly changing. It's very dynamic space. It's uh, indoor and outdoor interactive learning spaces, um, which we call an exploratorium. And um, it's South America's largest freshwater aquarium. Um, it's a planetarium, it's cafes, it's theaters. It's a vivarium, which is a pavilion for arthropods, reptiles, and amphibians of Colombia and South America. It's also, it also has a very exciting experimentation workshop where people and community groups um, come together to explore prototype ideas and to develop community projects in many, many areas. Um, the sky's the limit. Data activism, sound art, electronics, robotics, costume design, model aircraft, or some of the things that they've done, they, projects that they've worked on for their communities. Parque Explorer has an amazing, amazing range. If you go to their website, I think it's one of the most exciting websites of any museum in the world, and I've looked at a lot of them. Um, <clears throat> they have an amazing range of creative, scientific, and learning activities for all ages. It's, play out across the whole city and across many sectors. Uh, as one of the team guides put it, the message is, come, let's explore and learn by doing. Let's make this encounter with knowledge something exciting. 
And I happened to be there one of the days that they had, they, they sponsored the science fair, the citywide science fair, for all ages, from kindergartners with gardening projects, you know, to, to high schoolers. And the parents were there, the mayor of the city was there, and the kids are very proud, of course, to show off their work. So as I, as I explained earlier, um, it was the museum was purposely built um, in this forgotten kind of miserable area of Medellin, um, right next to the community of Moravia, which is rather unfortunately famous for a 114-foot high, 35 meters high area called Moravia Hill, which was made up of garbage. It was a municipal garbage dump for many, many years, particularly during the 70s and early 80s. By the 1990s and 2000s, during which thousands of families, um, very diverse, were fleeing violence, drugs, um, the militias, guerrillas, whatever, a very complex mix of factors in the countryside. They were fleeing the violence, and they came to the city. Um, many of them had no place to live. They had, so a lot of them ended up in this city, in this area called Moravia, and on the, on the mountainside. <clears throat> And so some of them ended up um, in Moravia building their own homes, and they also ended up living on this mountain of garbage. Um, it was no longer used as a garbage dump by that point, but they were living on it, what was there. Um, sometimes they made their houses out of what they found in the garbage dump. Uh, many of them could not find work, so hi, five minutes. I was told we could go a little longer today because Martin wasn't in the presentation today. Okay. <laughs> um, but I'm almost toward the end. <laughs> okay. um, so basically, these people were exposed to steep slopes, unstable soils, poorly constructed buildings, and as you can imagine, industrial, clinical, and domestic waste. Um, Parque Explorer was part of a um, coalition of government and nonprofit organizations um, that taught women of the neighborhood about um, scientific technology and health implications of what they were doing. And today, as you can see, the garbage dump has been turned into this beautiful public garden. It's been detoxified. At the top, you'll find a hothouse where they grow tropical flowers that they sell as a co-op, and they make money for their community. Um, and again, um, like the woman here on the left uh, who gave us a tour, residents will give you tours of their, of their town and their project, and their, um, they're very proud of what they've accomplished. I'm going to shorten my remarks now. So Parque Explorer has developed, out of that experience, they now have a social management program that serves the entire city, developing projects um, to enable residents to learn how science and technical literacy can improve their lives. And these projects are conceived in horizontal dialogue with community participation at every step. And they focus on issues that are important to the communities. At the heart of what Parque Explorer does is the social appropriation of knowledge. They believe that curiosity and creativity are inherent attributes of human beings. They communicate in a horizontal dialogue. They work as producers, humble producers, and mediators in their dialogue with users and with the community groups. They create and inspire, and they inspire creation of places and spaces that allow for spontaneous encounters, conversation, play, study, exploration, and discovery. 
And all of this leads to all the stakeholders involved solving problems, changing mindset, and becoming more informed and active citizens. That has contributed greatly to the transformation of Medellin. Um, this is Claudia Aguirre, who was Director of Education and Content when I was there at Parque Explorer in 2017, and she wrote something that sums it up beautifully. She wrote, Medellin is rewriting its history. Many people and institutions are involved in this reconstruction, and today Medellin has become an example of resilience and reconciliation for the world. Um, just a word on pandemic and how the pandemic has um, affected us, but the way Irani tribes have been fighting um, the Ecuador government, and they were able to force it to, through the courts to protect them and to provide health services during this crisis. Uh, the Museo de Favela, if you, if you go to their Facebook page, you'll see that they're very active, helping with blood collection drives, producing masks and baskets of survival items. They're representing their favela in conferences, virtual conferences on the territorialization of COVID in Brazil. And, and, doing, and doing quite a lot of other things as well. Um, and their ears, they have what they call a stay at home, stay home solidarity campaign. They are trying to keep people away from Bears Ears because of the vulnerable communities and the sensitive e ecology of Bears Ears National Monument. Um, and then in Park and Explora, if you go to their website, which is available in English on the Chrome browser, you will find the most amazing array of virtual programming. Um, and on their website, you will find this message. <clears throat> I named it the COVID Crisis Manifesto from Museums. They didn't call it that. That was my, my name for it. <clears throat> Your presence for us is always leading. If you are physical or virtual, it does not matter because the connection is and has been inalienable. You give meaning to this work. Look for possibilities here. You are at the center of all of our ideas and we create opportunities for you to enjoy and understand the world. In these demanding times, we seek a better world, more inclusive, more creative, where the idea of development does not mean GDP growth, but exalted capacities, the option to think, connect, understand, and play without being subjected to narrow molds. By temporarily suspending access to the museum, we did not close all the doors. We made fissures in them to open windows. If you go through them, you will find a lot of air for you to run away. Do it now. Do it with us. Remember that risking to know involves beauty, and then in times of crisis, the emancipated beauty of the idea is always urgent. ParkeExplorer.org. And I would love to, I'm just starting on this journey of this exploration I'm doing of territorial museums and, the, and how they relate um, in terms of indigenous communities and cultural landscapes. So I'm looking to continue the conversation. There's my email, my Instagram, and my LinkedIn account. Thank you. Thank you, Deborah, for your presentation. Very interesting presentation. Thank you. I will comment. Short, 
Okay, I'll come in after mini presentation. Okay, so mini, I will uh, give you the word so you can speak and start your presentation now. Okay, thank you. My apologies, everybody. It's going to be just a sec for Mini's um, PowerPoint to uh, load here. It's going a little slow right now. I don't know if it's power related or what, but it'll be there in just a minute. So many, if you like, you can start and then it'll catch up or you can, or if you want to hold off until the PowerPoint's loaded, that's fine too. It'll just take another minute here. I think you're still on mute, Mini. If you can uh, hit the little mic microphone icon to unmute. Can you hear me now? Okay, all right. Okay. Wajek, since I'm not able to hear you, since the bad man able to man, then the answer you get it. I can take you to you. Mini, Mini, can you see something? In a, in Hello, thank you for being here and thank you to the organizers. To the organizers. My name is Mini Kunisis and I am the executive director at Anstjeung Cree Cultural Institute. I am a Cree from uh, Mistisni, from the Cree Nation of Mistisni, in, uh, located in northern Quebec, Canada. <clears throat> when I was seven years old, my Jumshum and my Gokum, my, my grandfather and my grandmother, um, we, we were traveling by sled with our, with our dog, pulling the sled. As we were traveling beside a river, all of a sudden, the ice beneath us cracked open. I froze as I watched my, my Jungsum, my grandfather, holding onto the dog and the sled. The sled was right over the crack, and he started pulling it towards the, uh, towards the sore, you know, the safe area. And I saw, I see my gookum, my grandmother jumping over too. I was alone on, on the other side, standing still, not knowing what to do. As I watched all of this, time seemed to slow down. Then I heard my grandmother yelling at me. She said, Mini, goskte, Mini, jump. I looked down at the dark water flowing as the crack grew wider. I looked up at my gookum, my Gukum's face, I saw her despair and knowing that she couldn't swim and it was in the middle of winter and we were far away from civilization. <laughs> we were in the bush. I gathered all my strength into that jump and leaped across the crack on the ice. As I jumped as far as I could, I felt my Gukum's grasp on my coat. Then I knew I was safe. Today, thinking back to what we had on that sled, I understood why my Jungsung fought so hard to pull the sleigh and the dog because all our needs were there, our tools, our food, our clothing, everything. I remember my Gukum taking care of each item, whether it was clothes, tools, my snowsuits. At a young age, I was taught to make sure that I take care of my, my stuff. Every time I, I took off my snowsuits, I would hang them up on a tree. At the end of the day, I had to take off my moccasins and make sure I hung them to dry. 
and my axe too. I had to take care of my axe, you know, for to get boughs and for chopping wood, because those the, the tools we need, we needed them when we were in the bush. With a little gl glimpse of our history, I am honored and grateful for our elders and founding members' vision of Anshjogamka. Anshjogamka continues to implement the mission and vision of our ancestors in taking care of what we needed. Anshjogamka is is Cree Culture Institute opened in 2011 after decades of planning by EU elders and community members. Anshjogamka is based in a self-government region in what is known as the Eastern James Bay region of Quebec, Canada. And as such, many of the original policies and ways of work, working follow the existing practices of EU Cree communities and the Cree nation of EU Ishji. For example, we are allowed to take uh, traditional breaks with pay in the springtime and also in the fall. To this day, we still practice uh, hunting. We go on the land. I take my family and uh, they hunt. I, my daughter knows how to clean uh, the kill. <clears throat> and also my sons know how to take care of uh, what they kill. Uh, Anstjogam is a multi-purpose cultural center that offers regional cultural programming. It is a core network of local cultural centers. It promotes a dynamic and unified approach for services to the 10 Cree communities in the area. The meaning of Anstjogung, like just the word Anstje, it means the bridging or continuity to ensure that the traditions, knowledge and values are passed on from generation to generation. Located in, uh, uh, Anshjogung is located in um, Ujebogmo, in the, in the Cree community of Ujebogmo. Um, it's a regional cultural institute for EUHG, a self-governing region in what is now known as Quebec, what is known as Quebec, that has 10, ten Cree communities. So that the communities are Wabmextu, Chesidi, East Main, Wemenji, Waskaganis, Nemiska, Waswanipi, Ujebugmo, Mustisni, and Washashibi. Activities related to the to the uh, institute include educational programming related to EU culture management of the of a cultural archive, library, museum collection, and a permanent exhibition. The following mandate explains its mission, which is imbued with Cree, with EU values. Anshjogun flows from the knowledge that Cree culture must be captured, maintained, shared, celebrated, and practiced. It is a living, breathing symbol of our determination to preserve and share the stories and legends, the music, the pictures, and the physical objects that show our unique interaction with the land, expressed through hunting, fishing, trapping, and underscored with our reference for the land we have walked since time immemorial. Um, 
Doug, uh, Douglas Cardinal is an indigenous Canadian architect. Is the one that designed the original outlay of, of the community of Ojibwe. And he also designed uh, the Anjogum building. The inner, the inner circle of the village is meant to reflect the medicine wheel. Uh, in, the, in this slide, uh, Anjogum is at the lower right side of the, of the circle. The other buildings clockwise from Anjogum are the, is the Cree Nation Ban Office. And then the small uh, building is uh, the small circular building is a church, and across from that is the school. And on the on the, after that on the top right is the is a is a business building. In the center of the uh, the center is the uh, sapped one. It's uh, used as um, as an outdoor hockey rink in the winter and in the summer for outdoor gatherings. And beyond uh, the line of trees, you can see uh, Lake Kopemiska. The role of Anjogung was to encourage good communication interaction with the, other Cree, with the other Cree communities. It's to provide assistance and support in preventive measures, proper care and protection of collections. It's to partner with museums and heritage organizations for internship programs and to ensure cultural programs and teaching involving elders. In 2019, uh, we wrote a blog post about how we enact decolonizing principles through self-representation. Some of the points from the blog are highlighted here. There's a, there's a link here. The programs department is the largest department at Anjogum. This includes collections, the library, archives, archaeology, educational programming, gatherings, and special events. Educational programming organizes school visits for groups in and out of the region. We have partnership with, uh, with the schools in Shibugumo, uh, a French town that's 60 kilometers away and we work on delivering a history course for the, for the secondary five students. And we have worked with school groups on annual visits from as far away as Atlanta, uh, United States. Outreach to schools through the creation of education programming. One example was the development of a curriculum for the Cree School Board. Uh, presently, we are also um, at the ver like uh, we're just starting to meet with uh, the Shejep in Shibugmo too, to hopefully have a partnership on the delivery of uh, uh, Cree culture programming. Um, this pro this department also uh, they they host workshops and training sessions. We have uh, artist in resident programs and training sessions, such as um, we like we had a. A training session. We, it was called a rock, rock your mocks. <laughs> so week, where we had uh, elders coming in to teach the younger uh, people to make moccasins. Holding special events is another exciting part of programming. We produced and toured a theatrical production titled Mind's Eye, based on traditional stories from the area. Um, the the book was uh, written 
uh, by uh, a, a Cree from uh, northern Quebec uh, with a, she was a co-author. Uh, so and then uh, recently we and also recently we hosted the Montreal Symphony Orchestra and helped coordinate their visit on their tour of the northern communities. The performance was an opera based on traditional stories and legends. Archaeology is a, is a recent addition to the programs department. The archaeologist works with the communities on digs to uncover communities' history. They offer training programs for community members who are interested in learning about archaeology. As well, they invite students from local schools and participate in the digs. Collections and library and archives plays a large role in the department, and this will be discussed later. In 2019, we received uh, the board uh, the board's approval for the research policy. This policy ensures that research done by outsiders is done in a good way, that it is in line with our key values and centers that needs of our communities. Our inaugural ex exhibit features contemporary themes that bring past and present it, it's right here. <laughs> Together in our exhibition space, tools, childcare, crafts, transportation, sacred and ceremonial belongings, the history of our region, clothing such as mittens, moccasins, headgear, coats, uh, camp life, bags, and accessories, accompanied by histor historic and modern photographs. I just want to share. Um, uh, the scraper on the left on the left of the slide. This scraper um, is very sentimental to me. This was made by my great great grandfather. He had made this for his daughter, who is my great grandmother. <laughs> and uh, uh, you know, on her deathbed, she had given this to my grandmother. It was passed to my grandmother. And you know, the last, the last winter that my grandmother was with us, she gave me some of her items. And uh, you know, when she, when she handed me these items, I didn't want to accept them because I knew that she was telling me that she was going to go soon. So one of the items was this scraper. So you know, I, uh, I decided that Anne Jogum should keep it at the, at the, at the museum as a loan because you know I, I don't want it to be damaged and to this day the, the scraper is still there. How we centered the community in our collections work. We centered the needs and expectations of our community members in our procedure. For example, we have tailored our community loans program to be sure we can respect the needs of community members who have generously lent their personal accessories, possessions to us to share with visitors. Other ceremonial belongings may be lent with instructions that only a family member of the lender can handle the belongings directly because the belonging is imbued with a special protective relationship built between the owner and the belongings. This was the case with a McGahigan, 
lent as part of the child's first. Bagahigin is a, it's like a, it's a, like a little shovel, spade. It's lent uh, as a part of a child's first nose walk ceremonial outfit. A magahigan acts as a walking stick and scoops up for snow and ice and guides the owner safely over dangerous terrain. The photograph here shows the temporary the, shows the temporarily removed label in our child care display. This was when a lender needed some accessories back for the walking out ceremony for her daughter that were used by, by her older child. So it's like a, you know, it's, it's passed down. Um, the walk, the walking out, what is a walking out ceremony? I had, um, I asked my daughter to, ex, to, to write it down, what, you know, what it means, what, what is it for her. So um, I'm going to read what she wrote. So she wrote that the walking out ceremony is held when the child is about one or two years old. The reason for this ceremony is that the toddler's parents want to teach the Cree way of life, language and skills necessary. The child is dressed in traditional clothing and proceeds to walk out a teepee with the assistance from a family member. They both walk up about 20 feet to a tree, walk around it and walk back into the teepee. In this way, the parents are then able to teach their child about how the Cree look at the animals, land and life. Again, there's like, again, there's uh, links here. In 2015, we received a grant from the Canada's Department of Heritage and their Museum Assistance Program. The grant was to develop a traveling ex exhibit so we could take our EU culture on the road. This project had an all Cree content development team led by two Cree curators who are also artists and craftspeople. The first incarnation of the exhibit included over 150 belongings, many of which were lent by community members. The exhibition took two years to develop and fabricate. It opened in 2017 and, on this, and, on, and was on display at our facility for most of the year. The exhibit traveled to all of the 10 Cree communities in the region, accompanied by three uh, youth from the Cree communities who set it up and, uh, and they acted as guides too. This included one fly-in community. I, I would think it's about Mexico because they don't have a, an, access, an access road. The exhibit traveled to, to a few host venues in Quebec and to the Canadian National Museum of History in 2019 where it was on display for six months. As of 2020, it is in storage and we are, will be refurbishing it and changing some of the belongings because of their organic nature. They need to be changed to prevent damage from light exposure before continuing the tour in 2022 to 2025. The exhibit won some national awards including the 2018 Governor General's History Award for Excellence in Museums, History Alive, and in 2018, Canadian Museum Association's Award of Outstanding Achievement in Exhibition Cultural Heritage category. We are really proud of our traveling ex exhibit. 
These are some of the photographs from when it was installed at the Canadian Museum of History in 2019. Another, um, another recent exhibition project was in collaboration with Dr. Francis Wilkins and ethnomusicologist and lecturer at the University of, okay, I don't know how to pronounce this, um, Aber Aberdeen in Scotland. Scots and EUHG have been connected for many centuries because of the fur trade, and this exhibit was looking at the transfer of music between these regions, particularly fiddle music, which is still very popular in, our, in EUHG. You know, uh, even at the at weddings, you know, they they play fiddle and you know and they dance away. We worked together on the text panels to ensure that they were written from a decolonial perspective that placed our worldview and historic memory on uh, on per with that of the Scots, as per the Scots. This exhibit opened in Aber Aberdeen in 2018. We are planning to tour the text panels around EUC in 2021. We have co-authored an article about our experience of working together that is under consideration for museum anthropology. We have a research library that includes material relevant to our region, mostly non-fiction with an estimated 5,000 items. We have some rare books periodicals, and reference materials. The bulk of our collection has been formed from research libraries donated by retired anthropologists who worked in the region in the late 20th century. This is uh, Richard, such as uh, Richard Preston, Harvey Fiat, Kath Ober, Halster, uh, Pierre Desi. Um, we did not. We do not want to use the, do, the Dewey or the Library of Congress for cataloging the collection because these have a strange ways of dividing indigenous topics and use outdated racist langu language. Our librarian uh, Annie Bosom is from Ojibwe, from the from the community of Ojibwe, and has the special knowledge of the region that has required to adapt the Brian Deers classification system for our library. This was originally developed by a Mohawk man from, Gan from Ganwagi uh, in the Montreal area, specifically for indigenous libraries and has a flexible format that can be adapted for different regional uh, uses. It is also used in uh, British Columbia as well. Annie is something of an expert on this system and, implement in, and implementing it now. She has spoken at uh, provincial and national conferences. And again, we have a link here where you can read more. We uh, disseminate our work in a, in a variety of ways. We have an outline database that can be searched to find information about our museum collections our library and a selection of our archives. We have a Facebook page where we share information about events and other aspects of our work. We have a blog page where staff share information about projects they are working on. A recent post featured research about making paints and pigments from forest materials in our region. 
This was part of the research looking at the history of a paint, after painted caribou coat in our region. We've contributed to a regular feature to our uh, regional airline uh, owned by the by the Crees. It's called Air Quebec. It's a they have a magazine. Uh, we've also contributed chapters and articles to a number of publications, some of which have been referenced here. In conclusion, I'm hoping that this glimpse into the work of uh, uh, Anne has shown you how we, ha we, how we have been adapting the best of Western museological standards to meet the needs of our community and e EU worldview to show how decolonizing, decolonizing, <laughs> decolonizing um, I'm tired, sorry, our practice strengthens our self-determination and self-expression as guaranteed by the United Nations Declaration for the Rights of Indigenous People. Peoples, thank you. Thank you, Mimi. Thank you a lot for your presentation. So, I would comment your presentation, then comment to, to Deborah's presentation, and then open to you, everyone, if you have a question or comment. You can do now. So, uh, Mimi, the main goal of Mimi Konitz's presentation is to address how the relation with the EO and Cree community have helped them to revise and decolonize the institute and the museum traditional practice, as for example, conservation, documentation, and laws police. Nothing about us without us is the fundamental philosophy and I wonder how this sentence is still a challenge for museums even now. But this institute has built the exhibition and the other museum practice with the community, considering them as the protagonists and giving priority to them. It's a very interesting manifestation, museum manifestation. Thank you a lot, Mimi, for your presentation to us. And Deborah Ziska's paper discusses the contemporary needs and confrontation that museums have to face beyond the COVID-19 scenery and other crises in the Anthropocenic era to be more diverse, equitable, accessible, and inclusive. Thus, she added some sanitarium museum examples from Latin America, from Brazil, Colombia, Ecuador. From Brazil, I must mention the Museu da Favela and the Museu da Maré. The community and territorial museums can provide interesting models and practices to the traditional museums, which in turn have been disproportionately impacted by climate change, social economic disparity, violence, and political upheaval. So, thank you, Deborah, too. I open for questions if you, if someone has some questions. Um, if we're waiting for questions, there was one point I wanted to make. Um, okay. <laughs> I can make it. <laughs> And that is there. There's a there are com, there's so much commonality um, 
in terms of societal xenophobia, um, in terms of um, a lot of our societies, in terms of how we treat our indigenous cultures and uh, migrant or displaced cultures of displaced people, and also um, people in low-income neighborhoods. And that was a common factor across all of my examples. Um, and these are people, and these people have figured out how to fight back, how to rise above that, how to be, you know, and how to maintain their cultural identity at the same time. And through, through a mechanism of a museum style, you know, uh, like a cultural landscape, using that as their, as their mechanism, you might say, or a territorial museum. Okay. Uh, I actually, okay. On the... Uh, a question actually came through on the chat. Uh, Minnie, can you go back to the slide where you have the decolonization blog post? So I can sh I'll share the link to that. Uh, person wants to see the link for that, and so I can put it in the chat box. Is it the ACCI blog spot? I'm trying to remember. Wait, just give me a second here. <clears throat> Lisa is asking, and so I'll. The block spot. The block spot. Uh, I think it's on the slide five, eh? Right here. You see it? The FNIN. Okay. I will copy that into the text box here. Okay. So, uh, I would like to ask you one question to Deborah and one question to Mimi. Okay. Uh, I would like to, to listen more. Uh, from Deborah, how was your motivation for your research? What motivation you to go, to go to these countries and research such an experience? So I'd like to, to listen something more about you. And to Mimi, uh, could you talk more about the community participation do you think that most of them, or some of them, what do you think about that? I would like to, to listen more from you. Okay? Uh, okay, sure. Um, my background, I came to the National Gallery of Art, and I ran the press office there for decades, and I, I arrived there in 1988. But what I was doing before I came to the National Gallery is kind of a little non-traditional. I was um, working in international development. I worked in an end hunger movement domestically, and then I was working in um, international development with women's groups from all, over, <clears throat> from all over the world. And it was very grassroots. And a lot of the principles, we were, I was a very, it's a very pioneering organization because it was called OEF International, Overseas Education Fund. But one of the principles 
was that we were pioneering and that we worked with the women in the, in the communities, um, very much like in the way these museums are working in their communities. Um, and I, I feel like the same principles that we'd be using back then, um, we also pioneered um, those micro loans back in the early 80s. Um, so some of the same principles that we were using in grassroots community organizing to help women start business enterprises are very similar to the principles I see um, that um, indigenous groups are using in, in what we're talking about in terms of their cultural, in their cultural centers, um, the cultural landscapes, as well as the, um, the favela, the territorial museum, and the community-centric museum in Medellin. So that's partly where my um, inspiration comes from for this topic and for my course. My other inspiration, quite frankly, is um, I'm really tired of the designation of North America and South America, um, but how we designate things by geography or by where people live. And so I try to turn that on its head, um, both horizontally and vertically in my class. But we start with an upside down map of the hemisphere, where, Latin, where South America's on the top and North America's on the bottom. And say, you know, let me talk about that, <laughs> our perceptions of um, where people come from and how we perceive them. Thank you. Very interesting. Um, you, you wanted to know how uh, the community participation? Yes. Do you okay. think is most of them or some of them, what do you think? Well, the, actually the, the board of directors of Anstjogum, um, they are the, the cultural coordinators from, from each of the, the ten communities in the region. So that, that helps. And also, um, we do workshops in the communities. Like uh, an example is a couple months ago, Margaret Orr, she's uh, from Tezebi. And uh, she did workshops on the, um, on the uh, painted uh, caribou, like the designs on the, on the painted caribou coat. So, we, so where she, you know, she kind of took the, you know, the designs from the painted uh, caribou coats and we, and she did workshop on like we could make different things from it. Like um, me, I, like I made a, like a, a laptop sleeve, you know. So it was very interesting and she visited all the, all the Cree communities. Um, and uh, I find like it's also like in kind of in the center of a uh, well, more like in the south of uh, the region where we are, and it's uh, more, I guess it's accessible, you know, to to the to the towns uh, in uh, in the area. So anyway, I think I did I answer your your question. <laughs> Yes, okay, thank you for your answer. So I I open if someone wants to comment, you can open your microphone or wipe it you. Or even Deborah if you want to to make some question to me or meaning to Deborah. You can do, of Luciana, course. where do you live? In, in, do you live in Rio? Where do you live? I'm from Rio, but I live in Alfenas. <laughs> but I'm from Rio. Okay. Uh, so have you been to any of the museums in, in the favelas of Rio? Okay. Yes. Yeah, they're fantastic. Yes. 
they are made, they are amazing, they are fantastic. They are very good experience, community experience. I, I really like the Museum, museum of Maré, or Museo da Maré. I really like that museum. Very interesting the museum. Yeah, it's interesting how the museum concept, I think, and many, I was interested in how you were talking back toward the end of your talk about how um, you took some of the Western uh, principles of museology, but you took what you thought was useful or applied um, to your to your culture, and and so you've mixed things. And I'd, I'd like to hear a little bit more about that. I think that's, that's what I'm most interested in, because I think that's what I'd like about some of the examples, like the favela is similar in that regard, you know. They, they, they took some of the principles of Western museums or community museums and they made it their own, and they call it a territorial museum. That's very unique. So, I, and I think that's yeah. what it's at. And each neighbor, each community can do their own unique creation like that. But can you tell us more about your process in that regard, Minnie? Do you want, do you want to hear I'm, from? Sorry, I could not understand the question. Yeah, well, like I, like I said, you know, like, uh, like uh, we are able to use, you know, what's displayed and what's in the exhibit. You know, like uh, I know that one of our, one of our employees has a, she has a walking out ceremony uh, outfit on, on, on display and she can, you know, she can use that again, you know, if she yeah. wants to use it. Okay. So. Yeah, that it's a living culture. It's a, it's yeah, and and like yeah, like the loan that I also like I'm loaning it. You know that the scraper. Mm -hmm. You know, like I I didn't want to you know get it damaged. That's why I, I I'm putting it there. But you know I'm I don't know what I'm going to do with it in the future. But you know maybe I'm going to give it to my to my own uh, to my own community. You know. That's interesting because in the years past, you know, some things were given to or were taken by <laughs> um, colonial cultures and put in museums. So, um, have you, have you? I don't know if I missed it, if you mentioned it or not. But um, have, has your community been involved in any repatriation of objects? Well, I think um, <laughs> we 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 try not to use that word, you know, to I guess to be more. <laughs> Um, well, anyway, um, yes, we are getting a, we are, we will be getting a, the, the caribou coat from the, from the British. So it's something that, uh, it's, you know, it's very, um, you know, it's, it's a sense of belonging, you know, when, when you get something back, you know, it, it belongs to your ancestors, you know, and it's when, and, it, and when you, and when you have it in your, in your area, then, I'm like, wow, you know, this is, it belonged to us, you know, and now, you know, and I'm, I'm very, I'm looking forward to, to seeing this caribou coat. I don't know exactly when it's coming, but uh, oh. it's, it's coming. <laughs> so we're supposed to uh, have a reveal, revealing uh, next summer for the caribou coat. I hope you'll put that on, uh, make it a virtual event and so we can share in that. That would be. Yeah, I would love to. See yeah, it. well, that's something else that we're trying to work on right now is to have a like a a, um, a, a new website and also to have a some sort of a virtual uh, museum on uh, as well. Fantastic. Well, again, if you want to take examples, I think Parque Explorer has one of the best museum websites. It's very exciting. And you might want to take a few tips. I think it's just a, it's a great model if you're looking for models. 
Which um, which museum? Sorry. I'll put I'll put it I'll put the I'll put it in the chat box. It's Parque Explora, okay. but I'll I'll send okay. you the link. All right. Thank you. So we have a, a question I think from Alice. If you want to open your microphone and your camera. Can you hear me? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, hi, Minnie. This is Alice Sadongi. Um, and I had a question about the research um, policy, um, which I think is great. Um, have you had any resistance from non-tribal people about uh, doing research because they have to adhere to um, uh, the outlines that are, you know, put forth by the tribe, by the Cree? Um, you know, we're, we're, uh, right now we're trying to develop the, the cultural policy. And in there, we want to include, uh, you know, the, the also, I guess, to integrate the research policy in there as well. And, you know, the thing is that we want, uh, we want to make sure that all the research papers that were done, because what, what I found out is that we were, like, we, the Crees are the most uh, researched people. <laughs> I don't know for the past, uh, I don't know how many years there, but anyway, that's what I found out. So anyway, so with all these research papers, you know, floating around, we don't know where they are. So, you know, the goal is to, like, kind of, you know, because that, that is a... Uh, traditional knowledge, right? Yeah. You know, all these papers. So we want, we want to make sure that there's a, you know, a central place, you know, to have a copy of any research paper that's been done on our, in, in our communities. Mm -hmm. Great. Thank you. Great, thank you. So I put the link for Crockett Explorer, and if you open it in the Chrome browser, you probably know this trick already. You automatically translate into, Spanish, into English from Spanish. Um, but also, if you open it in any other browser besides Chrome, they have available English translation in the footer of the website. Okay. English is readily available. Uh, I have a, we have one question from Bruno. He writes he writes his his question here in the chat box. If you, if you want, I can read, or Deborah, if it's for you. Okay. She would like to ask you, what is the main specificity of Caminier Museums in Latin America in relation to museums in the U.S.? Um, what's the, re the relation? What, how they are different or how they are uncommon, the relationship? Um, or, I mean, there, there is, there is a, an association of a, a network of community museums, a global, um, and there are some uh, museums, like a museum, museum of humanity in San Diego, perhaps. But um, for me, the, the museum movement, the community museum movement, isn't quite the same in the United States as it is in Latin America. It's, it's much stronger in Latin America um, and in indigenous cultures um, all over the hemisphere. So um, it depends how you want to define eco-museums or community museums. I did not want to get too deeply into that because people are still um, uh, discussing the definition of museum, <laughs> much less the definition of community museum, right? So um, I didn't want to get too deep into definitions, but um, 
So I thought that indigenous cultures, in terms of cultural landscape, best defined the, the, the principles that I was looking for in terms of um, uh, community um, improvement, uh, of communities owning their culture and their heritage um, and using museum um, mechanisms to share it with the world and to improve their community. So I really don't have any case examples outside of what I presented in terms of U.S. Um, museum, community museums. Okay, good. <laughs> so I don't think we have more questions. So I give the word back to Susie. <laughs> that was lovely. Thank you. So Rob? Okay. Well, I guess at this point we can probably just move on to the closing remarks mm -hmm. then. I think we can... Um, I don't see any more questions coming in on the chat or over the microphone, so... I think we are ready to move on, Susie. Thank you to the uh, panelists. You all did a great job. Thank you. You're welcome. Yeah, thank you again. <laughs> so I wanted to thank everyone, Rob, for leading the online symposium, and SNU for pro providing the web platform where we're fortunate enough to gauge, engage with people from all over the world synchronously amidst this pandemic. And today, Vedek Coleman-Robinson shared in-depth insights on the importance of museums and community through a virtual lens and the versatility to understand ways to reach out to the community. Patricia A. Banks' presentation focused on Ethnic Museum Patronage as a Form of Diversity Capital, with case studies on African American and Native American museums. Her stance is that giving is a form of communication, and diversity framing is a symbolic association of diversity initiatives. And in the panel moderated by Michelle Rivet on theoretical museology and ethics, Alison Dongi's presentation emphasize the importance of lived experience when defining indigenous ethics transmitted from generations through language, land, culture, family, village, and self. And from this understanding, Alice's message is that indigenous ethics can be the foundations for tribal museums to create their own unique theoretical museology applied into museum practice. Marianne Bertin's presentation analyzed the development of indigenous museology in Aotearoa, New Zealand, Australia, New Caledonia, and Vanuatu in the Pacific Islands, illuminating the indigenous author's critique on ethics in local museums and how they have approached the redefinition through both theoretical and practical museology. Moderated by Luciana Carvalho, 
in the panel, Theoretical Museology and the Functions of Museums in the Community. Deborah Ziska presented the transformation of community-run museums in the Americas, focusing on indigenous and low-income peoples, from disengagement of colonial theories and museology that the museums were founded upon. Deborah's stance is that community museums have produced their own theoretical museological models that are set to address the critical conditions in the 21st century at this very moment, COVID-19, in addition to sustainability. Many Kumishas shared a Cree community understanding of decolonization of Euro-Western museology to the rectification of EO Cree communities the Cree nation of Yoisti museological values. Thus, theoretical museology is demonstrated within the practices of community and management of the museums. So these include the importance of sacred objects with ceremonial values to be loaned for communication. And I'm grateful to all the talented, notable scholars who presented and moderated and a global audience who came together to formulate new and diverse understandings in theoretical museology, which was critically represented by diversity. This symposium, which was organized by ICAFON, ICOM US, AAAM, and SNU, will now come to a closing, but we'll anticipate the ICAFON Annual General Assembly in the next hour or two. Uh, we hope you will attend as the assembly is open to everyone. So please stay online or sign back into the platform at 4 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. Thank you so much. We do have uh, Elizabeth Weiser raised her hand. Uh, oh, she, she did. Okay. Who, who do you have a question for, Liz? Oh, it looks like she actually logged out, so she may have just hit the button, the wrong button on the way out. <laughs> I see. Okay. Okay. Well, we are good to go then. Uh, like Susie said, thank you all for coming. Uh, it was really great having everybody here. It was great. Thank you to the presenters. Thank you to the audience. This was a really informative conversation. And like Susie said, we look forward to seeing everybody at the ICAFOM Annual Assembly at 4 p.m. Uh, this afternoon. Hi, everyone. Thanks, everybody. And if and like we said before, if you have any questions or concern or comments or anything for any of the people that have talked and you didn't get a chance to ask earlier, feel free to get in touch with Susie or me. We our contact information is on the uh, the the website, and we can um, pass it pass your questions along to the uh, presenters. So thank you all, and we'll see you at four o'clock. See you soon.